You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We are joined today by Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who, after graduating from college in ROTC in 1981, was commissioned as second lieutenant in military intelligence. His first assignment was as a paratrooper for the 82nd Airborne Division. Since then, he served in a variety of command and staff positions to include the commander of the 313th Military Intelligence Battalion and G2 of the 82nd Airborne Division, also G2 of the 18th Airborne Corps, the CJ2 of the Combined Joint Task Force 180 Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, the commander of the 111th Military Intelligence Brigade at the Army's Intelligence Center, the Director of Intelligence, Joint Special Operations Command with duty in Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom, the Director of Intelligence, the United States Central Command with duty in OEF and OIF, the Director of Intelligence for the Joint Staff, the Director of Intelligence for the International Security Assistant Force Afghanistan and U.S. Forces Afghanistan, and Special Assistant to the Deputy Chief of Staff G2. He most recently served as Assistant Director of National Intelligence for Partner Engagement before becoming the 18th Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency in July of 2012. He served as the DIA director until his retirement from the military in autumn of 2014. Thank you, General Flynn, for taking the time Thanks, to talk to us. Thanks, I really appreciate it. It's, it's uh, like reading my obituary. <laughs> well, not yet. Not yet. We're, <coughs> we're going to add several paragraphs Excuse to that. Me. So I want to start broadly and kind of tighten up the specific issues as yeah. we go. And, and one of the reasons I was really excited to have you was that since you began your career in military intelligence in the early 80s, You've really seen military intelligence transition from the Soviet Union as a main adversary to asymmetrical threats in the mm -hmm. 90s to things like coin theory. And then finally now back to great power adversaries, not call mm -hmm. them enemies, but adversaries. So can you talk very broadly about how the mission changed while you were in military intelligence from the 80s through a couple years ago? Well, I came into, uh, as, you, as you highlighted in my biography, I came in you know, at the beginning of a of an era i think where it was the fall you know it was the beginning of the fall or the collapse of the soviet union and you know and at that time of course none of us knew that uh, so we trained for uh, big conventional military operations big force on force operations and our doctrine was written that way the 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 challenge though in the 80s um, was that we came out of the Vietnam War and we acted as though we were never going to fight that kind of war again. And so actually my early days, in, you know, which was in the 82nd Airborne Division, and then my initial days as an instructor, I was actually uh, involved in quite a bit of 
what we would call then low intensity conflict uh, operations in with the 82nd um, in the Central America, and then teaching that, those kinds of things. So what was interesting for me was even though our military was was still looking at these large scale operations and training for these large scale operations, and our doctrine was that was like that. Uh, there, I began to see a transition as a young officer that we were, hey, we were going back into something. There was these challenges around the world, these proxy wars. And then all of a sudden you jump into the 90s. So you had the fall of the Soviet Union. Then you jump into the 90s and, and you know, you had the big desert shield, desert storm, mm. conventional force on force. And we all felt really good about it. But it was really a tactical engagement. It was right. 100 hours war. You know, it took us six months to kind of get prepared. We did it. It was over in a very short period of time, and we were out of there, and we you know, we felt good about you know running you know over the really a fourth-rate military right. at the time, you know, and it's that's good. I mean, we we were prepared to do that, and not going to take anything away from how that was done. But then again, we we were always sort of looking for that kind of a, of a war to a degree. I mean, in our doctrine, so we were training, we were writing about it. But the world was pulling us in a different direction, right. and we suddenly found ourselves in the Balkans. You know, so the 90s, was, and we're still there. I mean, we still have, right. you know, uh, some I'm number a veteran in the of the Balkans. Yeah, so we're now all of a sudden we're now a decade into the Balkans in a very heavy way with Bosnia, Herzegovina, Kosovo. I mean, the, all of the challenges there, and that was, a, that was actually a religious, you know, that was a, you know, was a lot of, you know, the Croatians, there was a lot of Christians and, and Muslims killing each other. Right. And, a lot of brutality, and it was still a result to a degree of the of the the, fall, the second or third order effect of the breakup of the Soviet Union because it was Yugoslavia. So we had this problem going on. And now all of a sudden you jump into this last decade, the first decade of the, 20, the uh, 21st century, where we had the attack you know, on 9-11. And we saw some indicators of that with other attacks in the late 90s, you know, the the uh, the the, the uh, tower attacks in New York, where the where the van blew up, and mm. it was a lot of people. It was some some number that were killed, and there was some number that certainly that was asphyxiated then. But so now you had the the, the last ten years, we had Bin Laden attacks. You know the, the United States of America in a big way, and now we're facing this new, relatively new threat of radical Islamic extremism, mm. and it's still ongoing today, and the problem has grown far far worse. All those transitions, all those those different things, and that's very, very strategic because there was a lot of other little things that were happening around the world, you know, not to mention what was going on out in the Pacific theater with North Korea and right. China. But we, we did not, we, we never caught up with ourselves. Our doctrine, our weapons, our, our training, um, you know, the agility of the intelligence community. And so thank God we had good military forces. We had that very very innovative, you know, young people that were part of our intelligence community that that would, despite the bureaucracy, would still do a really decent job to try to uh, help us solve some of these really right. complex problems, 80s, 90s, and this last uh, decade. So, uh, you know, what I would tell you is that um, I, I, you know, now as I look at the what's next, you know, what's the next transition? And the next transition uh, nobody will predict. Nobody will get it right. Nobody. I, I don't care how much we're, you know, how good our intelligence community or system is. We'll, we won't get it right. Uh, there are things that keep me up at night. And I think that the, the advent of, of technology in a much bigger way, in social media in a much bigger way, uh, interacting with human behavior is actually causing something that we are 
starting to sense, but we don't totally understand, and and what might it cause, and it could it could cause some really extraordinary uh, conflicts. Right. You know, I mean, you've got you've got a uh, a situation in in Europe right now. I, I've just seen uh, two uh, statements from two different chiefs of defense, basically talking about. You know the immigrant situation in a way. In fact, one of them, I think, it was either Sweden or Norway. People can say what they want about those two countries, but these are very thoughtful guys. Yep. Said that wait, we're 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 about to walk into World War Three here, and so the 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 bigger question is: Are we ready for these transitions? Do we transition well? And both my answer to both of those are no and no. Uh, you know, and one <clears throat> one example is in this war against. You know, the war on terror, okay, this, this insurgent war that we were fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last that we're still involved in, the, the, the doctrine that we started that war with on 9-11 had to be rewritten in, in 2006, the counterinsurgency right. manual, right? So the counterinsurgency manual was rewritten, but we were fighting. We had already been there for almost five years. So what the hell were we using? Right. You know, what were we using? We're using some old manuals, some old doctrine, some old equipment. A lot of making it up as we were going. A lot we of making along. it up yeah. as we were going. And all of a sudden, five years into the war, somebody finally said, you know what, maybe we got it wrong. Maybe we got our doctrine wrong. So we, re- we had to rewrite it. Well, when you, when you rewrite a new manual, that doesn't mean that everybody reads it. Now you've got to train it. Right. And that doesn't take, you can't do that overnight. And so anyway, I, I, I also think that we have forgotten how to win wars. I, I really, really believe that we have forgotten how to win wars, and we participate in them. Well, I mean, we, we haven't had a clean win since 1945, right. probably. Yeah. I mean, there's, That's right. there's been a lot of muddling through, and yeah. you know, Desert Storm perhaps was a clean win. And I'll tell you, I, yeah. get, I, get, I get tired of, the, of those uh, generals, frankly, and, and leaders who I've heard say, we've never lost a battle, you know, we've never lost a fight on the battlefield. You know, we win every one of them. Well, okay, so I got it. So, so our tactical capability right. is exquisite. You know, the intelligence system that provides us targeting is so good today, and it's machine-like, particularly in our special operations uh, uh, world. And, uh, and I will tell you, and they've, they've, got, they've brought it to a, a state of art. Um, but our problem is, is winning those tactical engagements doesn't matter. Right. It, it actually... It actually has not allowed us to win the war. We have not won the war. First, we haven't defined it as a war. Right. You know, so, you know, the intelligence community and the intelligence system and the leaders inside the intelligence system, you know, the old adage, truth to power, truth to power. Once the intelligence system loses that, that, that uh, sort of nom de guerre of itself, then... Uh, then I think we're in trouble. I think our country's in trouble. And, and I've, I have seen that begin to tilt again. When I, when I saw it, I studied it, uh, of, of what we essentially lied about in Vietnam, and, and then some other examples between the, the time in Vietnam and, and, uh, and then I think what I, what I see now and what I've seen, you know, uh, in some cases... So we're, we're in a difficult spot right now. We have forgotten how to win wars, and we need to remind ourselves, what does it take to win? Yeah, and you, talk, you brought up technology, and I, and I want to talk a little bit about that, because I think one of, a big part of military intelligence is understanding 
the capabilities of our adversaries, mm -hmm. the technological capabilities yep. of our adversaries. And you brought up Desert Storm also, and I, and I think that's when, an, to me, when a very interesting war, uh, because, and I'm wondering from your perspective, since you, you, you were on both sides of it and within the intelligence community, um, was it a surprise that what was vaunted as the fifth, what was the fifth largest army in the world, a battle-tested professional army using modern Soviet yeah. equipment that we yeah. had been very afraid of in the 1980s, staring across the Fulda Gap in Germany. Did, did you have, a, you and the military intelligence community, have a little bit of hindsight soul-searching about what you thought about the Soviet threat in the 1980s based on what happened in Desert Storm yeah. with our equipment and their equipment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the, uh, the things about intelligence analysis is worst casing it. So you typically, you'll worst case it. And you'll, and you know, because if, if you're, if you worst case it and it turns out that way, you're a hero. If you worst case it and it doesn't and you, you know, and you defeat the adversary, then, you know, you, you allowed the commander to prepare for the worst case and, and he was ready, mm -hmm. right? The, the challenge is, is that, you know, you give somebody, you, you put a tanker into a T-72, doesn't mean that he's trained to, to, to right. operate that thing very well. So one of the things of the intelligence community, particularly the defense intelligence community, is to analyze the capabilities of not just the weapon system. You know, a rifle is a rifle is a rifle, you know, fires a bullet in this direction, this fast, goes this far, you know, whether you put it in your hands, Vince, or my hands. But now, what's the quality of the individual shooting it? Right. What's the quality of their discipline? What's the quality of their uh, resilience? What's the quality of their morale? All those components, because, you know, do, can, they, can they withstand, you know, pressure? So do they train in an environment that at least replicates or tries to replicate the pressure that you might have, you know, on a battlefield? And, and we, knew that, we knew all these things about some of these enemies that we're facing. Now... You know, to, to kind of bring it to uh, bring it to what we are, where we are today, mm. we're not facing a very sophisticated enemy. They don't have sophisticated capabilities. They got, you know, some shoulder-fired stuff. They've got some rifles. They've got, you know, they've got some capabilities to. They they use some technology, phones and stuff to build bombs. They're using, you know, they're using um, ammonium nitrate as an example that's used for fertilizer to build some of these bombs mm. that are flipping over you know, several ton vehicles on the battlefield. So it's ingenious uh, the way our enemies actually think about uh, how to be cunning, you know, and how to right. operate against us. So, so we, we, have, we have some challenges, and we've had challenges. And, and I think that if, if everybody's, you know, happy that we, that we went through the Iraqi army like a hot knife through butter, I mean— we should be, we, you know, we, one, we should not be surprised. And we should, uh, uh, ha had it been any more difficult, we should be upset at ourselves. Right. We should be irritated with how much money we put into, into our ability and our capability and our readiness and our training and our intelligence system to be able to know that. I mean, you know, we put a lot of money into our intelligence system. But it's never predicted the, the sort of the event right we've always then have to react to it like law enforcement you know the crime occurs and then the cops right. show There's up no pre-crime yeah the cops show up and they do the they do the forensics and now they gotta now they gotta find the criminal right and and there's a you know what we want to do is we want to be preventative we want it we want our intelligence system to be preventative we want it to prevent and uh we want it to understand better we want it to to know things that are differently and there's a lot more to 
to know these days because of just, frankly, the sheer volume of data available to us in the intelligence community. So th there's another transition. You, talk, you asked about transitions earlier, Vince, and that's a great question. We're in another transition right now where the intelligence community is lethargic and not agile, not, uh, not, uh, not the people necessarily. Most of the, a lot of the analysts that I've worked with, uh, a lot of the, the junior leaders I've worked with, but there's a, there's a cultural lethargy in the intelligence community, a cultural bureaucracy that resists change. And that resistance of change, uh, can I, it, it actually does hurt our country. Mm -hmm. And the, so the leaders at the top level, they've got to back each other up and they've got to um, they have got to see the, the, the next horizon for what it is and prepare for that next horizon. And, and I think that um, what happens is the cultural lethargy, the, the lack of agility inside of these organizations, because frankly, some of them have gotten too big. Mm -hmm. They've gotten too arrogant. Uh, in their in their ways, and they've lost sight of what they're really good at, what their core capabilities are are uh, supposed to be, and uh, and when that happens, and it has happened, we uh, we're setting ourselves up for another failure. Now, hopefully, we are big enough and strong enough of a country to withstand another body blow. Right. I hope that that body blow isn't a weapon of mass destruction, you know, in in a New York City or a Washington D.C. that kills. 200,000 right. instead of, you know, 3,000, right? Right, absolutely. Uh, one thing that has really made you stand out is uh, how much of a vocal opponent to regime change you've been. Uh, and it's not just about Iraq. You came straight out and said Iraq was a mistake. Uh, your quote is, history will not be and should not be kind with the decision. Uh, but also places like Libya. But beyond what, what made think, what, look, I thought it was interesting, beyond these states, uh, you've also been a vocal opponent of for lack of a better term, regime change within non-state organizations. Mm -hmm. well, pe people, you know, Zarqawi, Zawahiri, Bin Laden. Um, and, and that brings up the question about Syria today, about the argument about taking Assad out of power, and mm -hmm. the argument about using drone attacks against people like Anwar al-Awlaki, who, after Bin Laden was killed, yeah. was considered the most dangerous man in the world. Can you talk a little bit about that philosophy, about, you know, the decapitation, I, that's a fancy way that the yeah, military has yeah, talked yeah. about uh, yeah. ways to win it's wars. It's a failed strategy. Well, that, that's I'd a, love that for you strategy, to talk about it. That strategy is a failed strategy. That actually comes from the last, the previous administration to the Obama administration. But that's a failed strategy. You know, you can kill these leaders all day long. Look, I mean, look at what we've done. This is, we're, roll, we're getting ready to roll into the fifth anniversary of, of, uh, of, the, of the death of bin Laden, right? Well, what has that gotten us? That's right. gotten us almost a tripling, if not quadrupling in some places, of the scale of this enemy that we're facing, and to include right here in the, in the homeland. So, um, so, the, so the, and I don't even want to use the word, but the taking out of leaders of, uh, of, these, of this current enemy that we're facing, that's a failed strategy. What we should do, it doesn't mean that we don't go after them. Mm -hmm. I would much rather capture these guys, put them... Put them, in, you know, put them on a, in, a, in a military tribunal. Sh you know, show, show them for what they are, which is really weak-kneed individuals who, are, who have nothing but excuses. And actually, if, when you capture some of these guys, some of them show their true colors, and, and they're, they're not as big and bold as they are when they're on the battlefield and, and, uh, and you know, and, and, and spewing all this hatred. So, um, so we, we uh, it's not that I'm, I'm against regime change in non-state. It's just that 
we have to be smarter about what we do. And I mean, Alaki, why didn't we, if we, re, if we could have captured him, why not capture a guy like that? Right. If we could have captured bin Laden, I know it would have been a circus in, you know, in, in some courtroom, but you know what? Make it a circus, but, but, but it's, you're showing this guy for who he is and you're, and you're, you're getting him to admit that, that either one, this is about a religion or two, I just, you know, I'm, I'm just a, a hateful person and, and like, I'm, I'm like another Hitler right. kind of thing, you know, like I'm a, I'm, I'm sort of like that ism was because, like I've said, you know, if we had lost to Hitler in World War II, we'd be praying at the altar of Nazism. So, um, and, you know, we don't want to pray to the altar of radical Islamism. We just don't. So we have to um, we have to understand what's happening. So let's just talk use Libya because you mentioned Libya. You know, I mean, we went into Iraq and we did what we did in Iraq and look at what we got. And then all of a sudden, did we learn a lesson? By, 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 by looking at Iraq and then going into Libya. I mean, Libya, just the other day, our Secretary of Defense, our current Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter, is now talking about, you know, putting troops into Libya, more special forces in Libya. Why? Because Libya is a failed state. So we, we went into Libya, God knows why, I guess to get rid of Gaddafi. It, we had nobody, you know, behind him to put, to put in behind him. I mean, it, it was sort of like, a, a political decision to, to, to get rid of him, a guy who was actually had given up his nuclear program for us, who, who was taking uh, al-Qaeda prisoners who we were capturing, and he was, he was taking them back into his country and putting them into prison. So when Qaddafi was, was, was uh, killed, essentially, and, and overthrown, uh, it, now Libya is a failed state. And you're, you've got elements of al-Qaeda and elements of, of the Islamic State now, now widening, widening the problem inside of Libya. Libya is going to be a, basically a bastion for mm -hmm. a safe haven, if you will, for, for uh, even more growth of this uh, radical element that we are facing. And, and frankly, one of the sad things about Libya is that's where most of the migrants, so if you look at the migrant routes coming across the Mediterranean, one of the major routes is coming out of Libya going right into Italy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's thousands and thousands of people a month. I mean, so, I mean, there's so many problems that were created by Libya. You know, so you can look back at the problem in Iraq and the decision made for Iraq, which I do believe history will not be kind to that decision. Now, all of a sudden, this administration does it for Libya right. with no plan for what, was, what we were going to do next. And it's like, come on. I think one of the points that you've made very, very strongly was uh, – the, the lack of knowledge of next guy up, of, yeah. you know, we, we can eliminate one leader, but the person behind may, you know, may be much worse. Uh, and, and if we might be better off with the person that we know versus yeah. the one that we have no idea what direction yeah. that's going to yeah. go in. You brought up um, special operations tactics. Uh, and, and I, I want to ask you about that because JSOC and others uh, were, were part of uh, the, was really one of the broadest parts now of the war on terror. Yeah. Uh, there's less about it's one of, when you back to back to transitions mm. that that machine that was that was built was probably one of the single biggest transitions for the intelligence community in the intelligence community's history. And that's what I wanted to ask you about. So please. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's, you know, and I'll tell you, I, and I really credit this to to uh, Stan McChrystal, the you know, the commander for five years, five years straight of uh, Joint Special Operations Command, 
you know, to, to drive this, this transformation. It was, it was a transformation of not only how special operations were, you know, would have to operate on this new battlefield, but how the intelligence system needed to enable that, that operational element and that operational arm. And there was enormous resistance. National Security Agency, Central Intelligence Agency, Defense Intelligence Agency, National Geospatial Agency, the, the, the sort of the, you know, the big ones. Um, they they uh, all resisted it because it was like, well, you know, the war is going to be over next, you know, the next rotation and the next rotation and the next rotation. And they all felt that way. And to a degree, they still do. And, and um, it's not to disparage the people that were coming out of those organizations that were being told, go out, you know, and serve. It's, it's really, again, it's back to this, this in, in some ways, a cultural arrogance that's like, well, that's not really our job. So this transformation that, that was put in place, it began with tactics. Tactically, we had to do things differently. We had to, and we were on a, you know, we were on a battlefield where people were losing their lives, and frankly, we were losing. We were losing that war. And so we had to do things differently, completely differently. And, you know, and there's been a lot written about it and stuff, so I won't get into all the, the, the machinations about it, but the, it was a significant transformation to integrate all of the intelligence capabilities, some that you never even heard about. You know, most people never even heard about NMEC, which is an acronym for the National Media Exploitation Center. You know, it's kind of like, what do they do? Mm-hmm. That, you know, the building that they're in out in Tyson's Corner, out in that, out in that part, you know, they, they used to call it the toilet bowl because of the way it looked. I mean, how disparaging is that? Right. For a bunch of people who actually, the people that work in that organization, they're saviors. They actually, they saved us many, many ways over by, by saying, by, by raising their hand and saying, you know what? We can help. So th- this is an intelligence capability and the leadership there said, hey, we, want, we, we think we can help. And so they reached out because everybody else was all more sigint, more human, you know, more, more imagery, which was all necessary. And it was bringing it together. But every intelligence component, they want to get credit for their intelligence. That sigint was the one that got them. Right. You know, geospatial or imagery was the one that got them. It was the human that got them. I mean, everybody wants that credit. And I don't know how many times I've seen different briefings about Zarqawi as an example that, you know, people, organizations taking credit for getting them instead of saying this was a, this was a massive team effort built over a period of about three years to get to that level. And, and, you know, you can, people can take credit for what they want, but the, really the credit goes to the operators on the battlefield that suddenly realized how important intelligence was to them. And they began to pull the system forward. They are the ones that really, I think, to, you know, if you're looking at not only the physical bravery and the courage that they, that they, and the resilience that they demonstrated over time, but what they did was they, they forced success by being successful. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they forced integration uh, on the battlefield because all of a sudden, you know, we were in the summer of 2004, we were, you know, we were doing maybe four to seven raids a month. And everybody's kind of like, well, you know, and we were asking for more. We wanted more stuff. We wanted more intelligence, more intelligence capabilities. It's like, well, you know, we, I'm not sure if we can afford it. You know, we're, we're busy over here. We're busy over there. we got problems everywhere around the world. We're, hey, we're at war. Our nation decided to take us to war. Right. The president of the, of the United States decided to take us to war. And we got people back in, 
Washington, D.C., where we're sitting right now, just kind of going, well, you know, yeah, I got it. You're not, you know, you're not really the priority right now. I mean, I, I, I physically flew back to Washington, D.C. as a colonel and walked the, the halls of the Pentagon to just raise hell with people because it was just, it was like, are you kidding me? I just found out from your office that you guys denied this request. You have every capability to be able to provide it, and you denied it. Why? Well, you guys just aren't the priority. I said, go take that over to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Tell them, tell the president that it's not the priority. Because I just, I was just told that it is the priority. Mm-hmm. So, I'm getting fired up here with you. But you know, it, it seems like a lot of what you're saying is that the the word community and intelligence community is not being embraced. The idea of yeah, it wasn't at that time. Okay. It wasn't at that time. I think that it has, it has progressively gotten better in certain areas but we have to make sure that we don't lose sight of of that we don't lose sight of what what that means it's not about you know sitting around in washington dc and a bunch of us you know staring at our navels in some in some uh, uh meeting that we have where all the ic members are together you know it's it's now it's it's you know literally where the you know the phrase where the rubber meets the road on the battlefield where we're placing men and women of our intelligence community, of our military forces on the battlefield where their lives are at stake. And they're, and they're not there because they want to be there. They're there because they're directed to be there. That community better be all capital letters. That word community better be in all mm-hmm. capital letters on the battlefield. And, I've, and I'm telling you, I'm sitting here today and I have been in contact with guys on the battlefield in Iraq today who don't believe that. Right. And so that's a problem. That's that's a problem for me because I'm like, Jesus, what's going on? Why isn't the message getting up to the highest level or why isn't the highest level, you know, paying attention to 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 what's happening? What more do you need? And and all this other stuff. I know we got other priorities, but but, you know, when when we win, we can have all the arguments we want. If we lose, we're not going to be arguing. We're going to be told what to do. In January of 2010, you wrote a paper uh, that was for the Center of New American Security uh, called mm-hmm. Fixing Intel, a Blueprint for Making Intelligence Relevant in Afghanistan. And, and I wanted to kind of pull, I'm going to read a little bit of it, kind of the first chunk after the abstract, uh, because I want to ask you about this. It's, this is pretty scathing. Uh, you wrote, eight years into the war in Afghanistan, the U.S. intelligence community is only marginally relevant to the overall strategy. Having focused the overwhelming majority of its collection efforts and analytical brain power on insurgent groups, the vast intelligence apparatus is unable to answer fundamental questions about the environment in which U.S. and allied forces operate and the people they seek to persuade. Ignorant of local econo- economics and landowners, hazy about who the power brokers are and how they might be influenced, and curious about the correlations between various development projects and the levels of cooperation among villagers, and disengaged from people in the best positions to find answers, whether aid workers or Afghan soldiers, U.S. intelligence officers and analysts can do little but shrug in response to high-level decision-makers seeking the knowledge, analysis, and information they need to wage a successful counterinsurgency. Has it gotten any better? Yeah, no. I mean, okay. I, how, how can it be? I mean, no. so I appreciate you, uh, you recognizing that uh, article, and that was, you know, along with Matt Pottinger and Paul Batchelor, two, two really courageous guys that, you know, that were willing to, to, uh, to create this, um, this argument. That w- that's essentially what that is. You know, fixing intelligence in, in the blueprint for, you know, intelligence, uh, you know, in Afghanistan. You could put it for, you know, in San Bernardino, California. You could put it for, you know, Syria. You could put it for Libya, Nigeria. You could put anything in there. Because the point is, 
we fail to understand the operational environment that we are operating within. And when you fail to understand that operational environment, you do not apply the right mix of capabilities and resources to, to, uh, to essentially achieve your objectives. And that failure uh, is still exists today. We are, we are matching the wrong set of resources against the problem because we look at it like, well, these guys, you know, I mean, uh, you know, big debate about defining, clearly defining the enemy. You can't defeat an enemy that you won't clearly define, period. Don't clearly define the enemy. You can't defeat them because you can't understand what their weaknesses, strengths are, vulnerabilities, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, um, so that, that what you just read was a recognition that we were in a country and we were fighting an enemy but the enemy, and, and we were trying to protect the population and instill confidence in, the, in not only the, 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 uh, the population of Afghanistan, but also the confidence of the International Security Assistance Forces, which at that time I think there was 43 countries. Mm-hmm. You know, we ended up with about 49. So the, the entire dynamic of the battlefield, and we were so overly focused on, on capturing and killing. Now, where did I come from? In, you know, in terms of in terms of a big chunk of my time uh, in in uh, in the war, was the capture and kill community. Right. So we like we just talked about we created a machine like capability. So I, you know that was my mission at that time. My mission now was to look at the whole problem, and go okay, w- you know what what's going on here because we weren't winning, we weren't winning, and so but we were we were killing and and capturing, no problem, but we weren't winning. And the problem, the, the scale of the enemy was growing. You know, it's the, it's the Muj math, right? Kill one, create ten. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty real math problem. And as a historian, that's straight out of Vietnam. The yeah. Idea, yeah the and idea so, it, again, it's, it's, it's not that in our doctrine we didn't have the requirement to understand military geography. So military geography and doctrine is not just uh, mountains and roads and rivers. It's also the human terrain. So it's not, it's not like we didn't have this, you know, in our diet. We just didn't care about it. Honestly, we, we didn't really do a, a, it sufficient justice. And so who's, whose job is that? Is that the intelligence community's job? The only community that we have in the, in the United States of America that can, that can you know, collect, uh, analyze, produce, and disseminate knowledge as, as, good as, any, as good as any other organization in the world is the United States intelligence community. That's a strategic advantage that, that we have if we use it you know, uh, properly, if we focus it properly. So we had really good knowledge about the Taliban. We had really good knowledge about the Haqqani network. We had really good knowledge about al-Qaeda and what they were doing. But when we're looking around, as I'm looking around the battlefield, I'm going, geez, we don't, we don't even know who the district governors are. We don't know who the pro- provincial governors are. We don't know who these guys, the ministers are. We don't know the chiefs of police. We don't know the district chiefs of police. Where did these guys come from? We're dealing with them. We had no clue about how much corruption was going on. Now, some people probably did. The, you know, the, the, um, the, uh, the IG, uh, the SEGAR, the, the IG of Afghanistan um, uh, Reconstruction, the SEGAR office that, that stood up, and I don't know the exact total name of that acronym, but it, it goes by SIGAR. I mean, just look at some of their, their assessments coming out of Afghanistan in terms of uh, corruption. Now, that's part of our problem. We were, we're to blame for a lot of that. Oh. So um, that's an understanding of all of this. In, so who's responsible to do that? Is it some 
civil affairs unit out of Fort Bragg, or is it the intelligence community? I, I think it's the intelligence community. And, and, uh, and actually, that, that phrase that you read was probably being polite. Well, there's an extraordinary phrase also in that paper where you say the U.S. intelligence community has fallen into the trap of waging an anti-insurgency campaign rather than a counter-insurgency campaign. Yeah. And that sounds like what you're talking about here, the idea of just kill them all instead of right. understanding right. You know, what's causing the insurgency right. in I mean, the first you know, place. Capture, kill, and, you know, and, I mean, and, and then you know, what do you do? I mean, so how do you fix the problem? You know, if you only look at this as a military problem, then you're only going to get a particular hammer based on how you know based on the nail that you're looking at and if you want a military solution you know you pick this hammer up the challenge for the country in this in this in what we're facing and for the intelligence system and the intelligence community is to help help our leadership understand what it is that we're facing and and understand the full breadth of the problem and it's not just this particular hammer because there's a even the, even the administration right now, they it, they appear even though they talk a little bit about some of these other things, but and this goes over the last couple of administrations. I mean, that, you know, there's not there's there's you know some things there. And 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 again, I, I'm a guy that was involved in it, and I'm arguing these points uh, in uniform, and I'm trying to make trying to stress you know things that we need to be thinking about the, the ideology versus versus just the fact that this guy's a member of the Taliban, mm -hmm. right? What's the ideology that's driving him? That's not a military solution right. that's a that's a completely different issue but they we tend to use the military as the only tool in our toolkit and yeah there's some diplomatic stuff here there's some nicety what i call the political baloney that goes on and frankly you know there's a there's an old phrase what's said in the room is not is not what's said outside the room and what that means is that you know you have all this glad handing nice talk and outside, you know, what you want in the room is you want real, real, real uh, blunt, right. honest conversation. You know, and then what you want said outside the room, you want that same honesty. We don't get that. Right. We don't get that. I think our military guys typically do it. I think our intelligence community, I mean, if you were to ask, uh, you know, analysts what they truly believe, if they didn't feel uh, in, unencumbered to speak about how they really felt, I think that they'd really, uh, I think they'd be really frustrated. And you brought it up to the modern day, so I want to ask you about ISIS, because that, kind of, that is the main threat that we're looking yeah. at overseas. Um, and, and I assume the answer to this, but I'll ask you anyway. Can we continue business as usual? Do we need ground forces? Do we need uh, a, a change in doctrine? Can change be politically possible? Because, of course, you know, Klauswitzian theory says we can only say what we want, but politics is going to be yeah. the key component here. Can we get the votes to do a change in our tactics and strategy against ISIS. And you've written uh, that finance is the Achilles heel for ISIS. Can you talk a yeah. little bit about that? Yeah, I think I think the financial and their entire you have to understand their entire network and, and what makes them thrive. Certainly financial system is is a big part of that. And and we can't um, allow uh, when you get into the gray world of of threat financing, uh, you know, and you start to really dig down into the into the forensics of, of a particular financial network for a terrorist group, you might find people on the other end of that that seem like they're legitimate. Banks, right? You know, national leaders, um, and even in our own system, even in our own country. So, are they, you know, are they witting to this financial network, or are they unwitting? If they're unwitting, then then you need to tell them. If they're witting. 
you need to arrest them. You need to stop their behavior. Um, so yeah, so financial the financial component of of the funding, but you can't just shut that down. That that's again that's a tactic. Right. Just like a, you know going and killing another going and killing Baghdad. Hey Baghdad, he could be dead today. I, I don't know. I, all, all I know is that I haven't heard from him lately, and uh, you know maybe he's dead. They they seem to be operating just fine without him being out there exposed too much. Um, so the the tactic of killing the enemy, capturing the enemy, stopping their financial network, you know, doing some doing some information operations to counter, the, you know, these beautiful magazines that I'll, that the Islamic State puts out. I mean, just unbelievable, it's high quality. Right. Uh, the the amount of jihadists who are who have thousands, tens of thousands of Twitter followers, you know, the influence that they're doing. Those are tactics to go after them. We have to look at the at the whole problem, and we have to recognize that the ideology that we're facing, this religious ideology of radical Islamism, is actually the bigger problem. And and so is that, you know, is this a Christian versus versus you know Islamic war? No, it's not. It's Western values against a violent, barbaric uh, interpretation of Islam, and. The rest of the Arab world is sort of the legitimate Arab world, you know, uh, and I don't use that word loosely. I mean, there are legitimate Arabs out there, leaders in countries that that know that there's a problem. They have to do more. They have to take this on. They have to take this problem on. But we've got to have this conversation very honestly. Without it, we're never going to achieve the, the, you know, we're never going to get past this and we're going to be in this perpetual state of conflict. And and we're going to we're going to grow even more tension uh, in our own country, honestly, uh, again, I'm, I'm paying very close attention to what's happening happening in, in uh, Europe right now with this uh, immigration problem, right. and they're having significant problems. I mean, to the point of, you know, you're going to see uh, levels of violence, I think, in Europe against directed against some of these these immigrants just because of their behavior, and and that that you know that second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth order effect of all this could turn into as the, I think it was the uh, either the Swedish or the Norwegian uh, chief of defense that said World War III. Right. So uh, a couple more questions, and, and, and then uh, we can go from here. But um, I want to switch gears pretty dramatically and ask you about potential great power conflicts. Yeah. Uh, or or conflicts is the wrong word. The idea of adversaries uh, who are who are not terrorist organizations who are. Uh, other very capable militaries sure, Russia, like China. Russia, China, yep. um, the potential of India, Pakistan going bad. Um, do we need to, how do we refocus attention? Do we need to refocus attention? Can we do both at the same time? Yeah. Do we have the intelligence capabilities to pay attention to the changing dynamic in the asymmetrical threats, like you talked about, the idea of, of identifying the problem, of, of getting the intelligence community to work together as a community, while at the same time paying attention to the great power conflict potentials with the Chinese in, in the South China Sea and the Russians in Ukraine and Crimea? Yeah. How do we do both? Can we do both? Uh, and, and are we taking our eye off the ball when you see things like the OPM hacks and Russia's actions in Ukraine and yeah. Putin's resurgency? So, so you know, your listeners, too, don't ever, um, don't fail to understand tactics and strategy and then what I would call sort of grand strategy or geopolitical, the geopolitical dynamics of the world. Mm -hmm. And um, so what you really, the, the best way to understand it, what you're asking, because it's a very real problem. I mean, yeah, so the answer is yes, and I'll, and I will 
I'll try to you know answer every part of what you asked, but you really have to understand economics. You have to understand the, the global economy, and I'm not a I'm not a subject matter expert in in this specific issue, but I've studied it. I have you know a little bit of a of a of, you know I've studied enough economics and I've studied enough of what these countries do, Russia and China, and their and their economies, European economies, commercial markets and the ability to move commerce around the world, where are investments by China, by Russia, going elsewhere other than in their own countries? So where else are they investing around the world? What are they investing in? What are the types of commodities that they're investing in? And sometimes even that can be a tactical issue because you might say, okay, well, China's investing in, in a certain type of rare earth element in Africa. Okay, fine. Where are they investing and why? It's not so much to get that particular commodity. It may be because they want to develop a political alliance with that country. And it, it may be that in the last 10 or 20 years, the U.S. actually had a stronger alliance with that country. So, so China's using their economic strength to be able to drive a wedge in alliances that the U.S. had with other countries. Right. So. Economics is a big, big part of warfare, and it's what drives us to the, these larger conventional force-on-force, state-on-state wars. Because when one country feels like there's a problem and they feel like their economic system, you know, if Russia feels like it's going to collapse, Russia's going to act differently. If China felt like it was going to collapse, it would act differently. So when you look at China, let's just take China. Mm-hmm. China has a... You know, we, we look at uh, at four years, one administration to the next. They got to go back through a political election. We're going through a national election right now. Everybody's saying all kinds of things. Most of them are talking about the Islamic State. But when we look at China's timeline, China's time horizons, you know, four years to them is nothing. Right. They look at they look at a generation, which is about thirty or fifty years. So China believes that by maybe twenty twenty five, maybe certainly by twenty fifty. That China will be the dominant world power. They will be the glo- they will be the leader on the world stage, and everybody will be kowtowing to China by 2050. So, how do you get there? And you, uh, you know, how do you build yourself up to do that? If you look back in, in just 2000, not that long ago, so half of a generation ago, right, 15 years ago, what was China doing on the continent of Africa? And you know, rhetoric question, but essentially about a year ago, they weren't doing much. They were there. So. So big answer is not much. They were doing some investment, investment here and there. You look fast forward almost 15 years, and I think it was the, the year 2014, China invested like $200 billion on the continent of Africa. Why? And in what? And for what reasons? All the things that I just talked mm-hmm. about. And so why? And now China is also, you know, when you think about the Africa Union out of, uh, out of um, Ethiopia, which is where they're, they're based, the Chinese are right there working with them. Right. Okay, they're part of it. It's almost like they're part of it. The Chinese got involved in counter-piracy in, off the coast of Somalia back around roughly 2007-2008 time frame. Did they join the, the coalition task force that was there? No. They came in there all by themselves. They, they said, we're here, we're going to operate, give us a, a block of water that we can operate in, and they, and they operated there. So was it to counter-pirates? No. What, what was it really meant to do? Well, what it did for them, so now we're... So if that, let's just say it was 2008, this is 2015, so seven years later, 
the Chinese Navy now has been transiting, you know, the, the Straits of Malacca and the other straits in the South China Sea out underneath, the, you know, south of, of India mm-hmm. into the Arabian Sea. And now they're operating with their Navy in a much different way. And that's seven years into it. So now you project, you know, maybe five, maybe three more years. So that's a decade. And you project another 20 years. So they so they, they have a very, you know, the, the sort of the, the madness to their method Right. It's pretty thoughtful. It's long term. And you have to look at all these dimensions. It's economic at the very end of the day. So what will cause us to go sort of force on force? And I'm glad you mentioned India, Pakistan. Okay. So India, India is a very, it's an awesome country. It's very powerful, uh, big country. They will surpass China in population in the, between now and 2050. Um, if I worry about a conventional war, I, I worry about that. Yep. And I worry about that because the, the best friend of Pakistan is China since about 1957. Never broken up their relationship. They've always helped them. They're right there with them. You know, we've had, we've had a mixed, we've had a, you know. Right, we've been all over the place. Mixed relationship, relationship with, yeah. with Pakistan. You know, who's the best friend of, of India? India. India is the best friend of India. You know, there's mixed relationships because we, you know, we do different things with them. The Indians still get a lot of their uh, weaponry from Russia. So, uh, you know, but if those two countries went to war, both of them are nuclear. Right. One is far larger than the other. You know, you're talking about one point, you know, two billion people versus about 185 million people, you know, in Pakistan. Uh, you know, larger military, larger capabilities in India. Uh, very actually not bad. They're pretty good, pretty effective, well trained. Pakistan got a lot of. They got a lot of. They're 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 in a tough spot right now because they've had to fight a lot. They've been fighting in their own inside their own country. Right. Extraordinary courage by the Pakistani military. Um, extraordinary courage. I mean, they have had, they have had a lot of of their own casualties. So they're they're in a kind of a little bit of a weakened position. So they're you know could could a could a terrorist group that has been allowed to reside and not pressured enough inside of Pakistan, like Lashkar-e-Taiba, go do another Mumbai attack or in a bigger way. I mean, a, an Indian Air Force base, I believe, was just attacked, mm-hmm. you know, within the past month by one of these radicalized elements. They actually, I think I, they actually got inside the base. Um, but if you had something bigger from the other side of the border, from Pakistan's side of the border into India, you know, I was I was glad to see the Indians, the way that they responded when Mumbai occurred. They took a deep breath. They looked yep. at the strategic picture, and they said, "Okay, we're we're going to resolve this, but but this is not good." Well, and this is these are two countries that have fought three wars against each right. other, you know, including right. the only the only war between two nuclear yeah. states in ninety nine. Yeah. yeah, but this has changed though. The dynamic has changed because the. The scale of radical Islamist groups known and designated by our own U.S. State Department in Pakistan uh, has at least doubled. Actually, it might be a little bit more than that. Doubled in the last 10 years. So, so you have these groups in, in Pakistan that, that, you know, that could be used in different ways against India, or they might decide themselves to cause tension. They don't care. that Their, their idea about living and dying is totally different than what we believe. So, um, so I, I think this conventional, this notion of conventional war is very real. Uh, everybody, you know, everybody's worried about destroying ISIS. We need to do that. We need to, we have to do that. We, you know, 
and you asked, you asked, um, you know, can we juggle more than one ball? And the answer is yeah. In fact, we don't have a choice. Right. We have to. So we have to figure out how do we juggle? How does the United States intelligence community enable this country to understand the world in a way that's far deeper? And frankly, if if you only relied on intelligence, we're we're going to fail as a nation. Um, but the intelligence community has a big role in that, big, big role in that. And I think that there's got to be some different ways that the intelligence community functions and operates and allows its people to operate um, in a much freer way, taking some, some uh, even more extraordinary risks. I mean, I, I really, you know, for, the, for those that listen that are, you know, part of the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, CIA, I, I really, really believe that, that that's an organization that, uh, one, has extraordinary people and, and some talent, but lost sight of of what it was really, really the best in the world at, and that's human intelligence. And I, you know, I mean, I've been plenty of conversations where people describe them as the best air force in the world. I don't know what that means. I just know that that people have said that, you know, because of these mysterious, you know, things that happen around the world uh, with some of these uh, some of these strikes. I I I think that that has that that's something that that's a cultural shift yeah. and we've got to understand that if we want to have exquisite human intelligence that's not based in paris you know that goes out there on the battlefield sometimes right. and and i you know not to say that there haven't been people that have done that but you know i mean there's a there's a uh, there's a reason why the special operations community you know you know really uh, in in a way embraced that kind of intelligence themselves right because and then and then you wanted to bring in you know that that agency closer because they had the authorities well, yeah, and they had the money yeah you got the teams guys and the special operators are doing collection on the battlefield right. so i mean i you know because i don't want to get into you know there's no, no nothing we're talking about classified here but but I, I just think that we have to understand what are what are what are we really good at what are our core capabilities I believe, I believe, I'm sitting here today telling you this on, you know, on your podcast from the Spy, Spy Museum, I believe that, <clears throat> that you could create an open source uh, intelligence capability to compete against the U.S. intelligence community at, at far cheaper. Um, now, maybe we're able to do that because of the space programs that we put into place and, and all these other things, but... My, my shift, what I saw as a, as a senior intelligence officer, and I, I went up to be the, you know, the senior intelligence officer for the Department of Defense, in my days where you mentioned, like, you know, as a you know, senior intelligence officer for 18th Airborne Corps, when I was the senior intelligence officer for 18th Airborne Corps prior to 9-11, most of the intelligence that I would present to my commander was, was uh, you know, SIGINT, imagery, you know, some human, if it was, you know, some tactical, maybe some strategic stuff, um, you know, some, some analysis that was done at a very top secret level, almost 80%. So I'd go in there every day, I'd give them a briefing. You know, when we did operations, either exercises or real-world operations that we were still involved in the Balkans, you get your tactical intelligence reporting, you know, from your patrols and stuff like that. I would say about 80% was, was really in the world of INT, I-N-T. Today, it's the world of, I mean, that's flipped on its head. Right. It's like 90% now is in the world of open source, the open world of information. 
I mean, I, I, I'm, I you know, was with a, a group the other day looking at some incredible op, you know, open source capability that tells me everything I need to know as a military guy, tells me everything I need to know about planning, targeting, and operating from just that one capability. And it was all free, except for the except for the uh, the particular technology. Right. But the but the data was free. And so so you can maybe maybe the Intel community can go out and steal some more data and add it in there, and that gives you a that that gives you a refinement and enrichment of the intelligence. But really, the open world of information today, it's 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 it has surpassed the intelligence community, and I think the intelligence community needs to. Um, needs to find, you know, sort of rediscover its agility, its speed to action. And, uh, and I think that they need to uh, allow uh, those down in the sort of the bowels of the, of the organizations that exist to uh, feel much more f- freedom to be able to really be honest. Right. It, it's not, it's, you know, Jim Clapper... He's a great guy, unbelievable servant of this country. Uh, but between sort of the old phrase in the military, it's between the bars and the stars. Well, you know, between those captain's bars and the stars above you, there's multiple layers. And believe me, the, 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 the bureaucratic uh, inertia in the United States intelligence community, the chokehold that, that, that exists, you know, is, is, really, uh, is really something that uh, is, is actually hurting us right now. It was just announced, I think, today uh, that, uh, you know, Mike Rogers, Admiral Mike Rogers, the uh, commander of Cyber Command and the director of National Security Agency, just announced, I think he called it NSA 21, which is a, uh, a, a, you know, means to reform, uh, to, you know, reorganize the agency. And and, uh, I would tell you that I'm one, I'm a a huge, huge fan of his. I, I think the world of him. I... I want nothing but that to be incredibly successful. But, you know, he's already, he, he exposed it in some uh, presentation he gave the other day, and it's sort of out publicly now as a, as a, I guess it's, you know, announced. And there's already people. I have, I've already gotten, you know, cards and letters from people telling me how, you know, this is going to be, you know, this part of the agency, that part of the agency, this part of the community. Hey, it's tough. If you don't do it, folks, you know, it's not that it's going to be perfect, and it's going to be hard. And he's not saying it's got to be done in six months. Right. I think his timeline is like five years. So, you know, give it a shot. Do something. Right. Be part of the solution. Be part of the solution. I, I, I felt this at DIA in a big way, and I'll tell you. I mean, I, I, uh, and there's still people that are, that are serving there that, that, that would get in the way of change because it wasn't good for them. It made them work harder. When I can tell you, the people down at the bowels are busting their humps. Right. People out in the commands, out in the field, in our embassies, in the combatant commands, and frankly, members of the science and tech community, National Media Exploitation Center, the analysts that are in various centers, whether it's in CIA or DIA, they're working their tails off. And all they want to do is they want to know that their leadership, so, so they heard from the director that the director wants this. Now, I know he didn't just wake up last night and think and dream it you know he's probably been talking quite a bit about it now he needs the help of the leadership the bureaucrats in our system to jump on board and and move move and do it and get it done support it 
support it because you know what? It's it's one of these things where we don't have a choice but to change. Right. And it, because if we don't, those organizations that haven't changed, they go away. They go away. And the nations that are that are that are part of those you know, that have those organizations as a part of them, those nations don't exist anymore. So, um, so anyway, uh, really, really uh, interesting stuff. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so you continue to advocate and about the way that the intelligence community can be done better from the outside world. Again, you, you retired in 2014, and you're now the chairman and CEO of the Flynn Intel Group. I assume you named it after yourself. Uh, but what 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 do you do? Like what what do you uh, what is the Flynn Intel Group doing? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, we are involved in intelligence, security, cyber, and uh, those those sort of components. And what we have created is a very small, agile team to uh, bring together partnerships and help those companies. So if it's a small company, particularly veteran-owned companies, in those in those commodity areas, intelligence, cyber, and security, frankly, for all. Uh, what they call in the business world, all verticals, all market sectors, healthcare, transportation, you know, logistics, supply chain management, uh, you know, and, and, and maybe some dabbling in government. But frankly, government is too hard to work with because it's just so incredibly bureaucratic. And there's a chokehold by, by many of the sort of the bigger guys to, that stu- stunts those. So, so we're trying to partner we're, we're looking for uh we're, we're leveraging the network that we have which is international commercial uh, business and uh, government to a degree and trying to help uh companies who are are who are good small companies to get better mid-sized companies who are who are uh, good and strong to even uh, grow better and partnering with them to uh to basically uh, have some fun uh at the end of the day the three words that that uh that we are about in Flint Intelligence Group is defense, diplomacy, and development. And if we can combine those three things, uh, and that's for countries who are uh, who have this essentially are aligned in some way with our values here in this country, will help other countries. Certainly, companies that uh, that are looking for uh, help to uh, to be exposed to new ideas, new markets. We are being very very innovative, very disruptive in some uh, some aspects. Um, and and I, I you know I personally see probably a dozen uh, you know ten to a dozen companies a week um, in terms of uh, what they're what they're doing and how they're trying to break in and so my, with my experience in how to break into in and in how to uh, talk to senior executives senior leaders C-suite level people uh, how to understand you know co- the complexity of of what it is that they're trying to put together. And if I can do that uh, in, in, in any way, if I can help in any way, we are. And uh, that's, that's, you know, defense, diplomacy, and development are really the sort of the, the monikers that we like to tag to our shield, uh, which is our logo. Well, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, the former director of the Defense Intelligence Agency and many other things, as his uh, bio uh, showed us in the beginning, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. Yeah, thanks, Vince. Thanks for having me. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast.com at spymuseum.org, or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. 
That's I-N-T-L SpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.